can't handle the truth. No, Jack, you can't handle the truth. See, the truth is that All Things Film offers the best value in free movie podcasts on the internet. That's right, free, as in it costs you nothing. Daily Grindhouse, films and swearing, a movie podcast. It was only a pound. La La Film, Maths Movie Side UK, Podcast on Fire, and of course, Film Exploitation, the All Things Film podcast. All free and all available online on iTunes, on the podcast app, on Stitcher, on TuneIn Radio, direct or from www.allthingsfilm.co.uk. As far back as I can remember, I always wanted to be a gangster. See, as far back as I can remember, I always wanted to be a podcaster. All Things Film, the premium film movie podcast feed on the net. Hello everybody, Kenby here. This is a little post-recording to explain some of the making of, uh, of this episode. It was originally recorded as Japan on Fire 19, covering Sabu's movies Monday and Blessing Bell. And due to an almost three-hour chat between me and Coffin John on both movies, actors and Japanese cinema in general, all of which was good material, I thought it'd be fair that for once I'd cut down the episode for easier consumption in the end. Meaning Japan on Fire 19 became in editing episode 19 and 20. This was obviously not referenced during the show, which is why I'm recording this bit and will interrupt periodically with some remarks to explain the context of the edits, how it was originally conceived and so forth. So on with the show, hope you enjoy and I'll talk to you on occasion during the show. Welcome to Japan of Fire 19 on Sabu's Monday and Blessing Bell. And this is part two of our series on director Sabu. And in the first episode, we covered his first two movies, Dangan Runner and Postman Blues. And that was episode 18. This is 19. And his characters ran and rode on bikes amidst droll, quirky and absurd humor in those two movies. There was a little bit of drama in there as well, and not a lot changes for this episode yet. A lot changes at the same time, and you'll find out what that is as we look at Monday and Blessing Bell. And my name is Kenny Beer with me again to keep me in line and also to provide more of an expert voice on all things Japanese cinema, in my in my opinion and, and uh, estimation, is the cinema's Coffin Jones. So say hi, buddy. Good to be back on this hot Bay Area morning. How How is the dog coping with that um, heat? Right. She is actually, I don't know where she is. She's probably in the living room somewhere where it's a little Sunbathing. This is awesome. Yeah. We like it here. And yeah. Podcasting is not as fun. It's not as much fun as I thought it was. So, bye bye, monster. I'm not doing podcasts with you anymore. Exactly. 
Alrighty. Oh, in Sabu land still, uh, we planned four episodes uh, for this uh, coverage. This is part two. So uh, we're um, we're not letting you listeners wait a year between episodes, uh, at least in terms of this series. Uh, we are planning to uh, get to this series uh, done uh, in a more limited uh, or a smaller time space spectrum kind of thing. Uh, so uh, let's get into it after a short a bit of uh, contact information. This is Japan on Fire on the Podcast on Fire network. Our website is podcastonfire.com. Find this show, all the other shows on Hong Kong cinema, Taiwanese cinema, and uh, Hong Kong adult cinema, etc. On that very site, and you also have exclusive bonus episodes on there. A feature that I literally stole, where was inspired by watching your prior podcast output, John. I, I, I like the idea of bonus episodes, and you did that whilst uh, V-Cinema, the podcast, was still active. So uh, consider you're, you're an inspiration, man, and I'm a thief. How, how flattering. <laughs> and disgusting. <laughs> I know, but uh, that's how I roll. Uh, but uh, there you go. We also have emails where you can uh, uh, express your thoughts of disgust towards us stealing such concepts at podcastonfire at googlemail.com we are on facebook like our page facebook.com forward slash pof network we also have a facebook discussion group that you can find by following following the link in the about section on that very site or type in podcast on fire network in the facebook search bar follow our tweets and tweet us twitter.com forward slash podcast on fire I write about Hong Kong cinema, Taiwanese cinema, ninja movies, and various other genres at SoGoodReviews.com. And I do little spoken video reviews, little audio commentaries on my reviews at SleazyKVideo.com. And I tweet at Twitter.com forward slash SoGoodReviews. Japan on Fire is also available on iTunes. And if you are one of those uh, users, uh, then please rate and uh, leave a small written uh, review for us uh, if you uh, like the show or leave any constructive uh, feedback that uh, that uh, might be good for us to hear. We welcome that. So thank you very much for taking the time. And finally, if you don't like downloading podcasts to your devices, there is Stitcher Radio available uh, uh, you can stream us on Stitcher Radio, that is, and you do that through their website. But the smoothest way to follow us is through their application available for various devices, such as the iPod uh, Touch, I suppose, uh, iPhone and uh, I- iPad and Android. And once you're in Stitcher, type in Japan on Fire to find us the latest, res- uh, the latest shows and add us to your favorites. Uh, com is an active blog. Uh, it, was, it was a podcast. It was a blog back then and uh, it's just so to say a blog now but a damn fine and very active blog. So for listeners who do not know what you do over there, what would you like to uh, tell us? Summarize it. Yeah, V Cinema shows S-H-O-W and uh, as you mentioned, Ken, it was originally a uh, uh, podcast, thus uh, the show in our uh, URL. But, um, you know, now we do, uh, primarily, uh, review, uh, of course, of Asian films, um, basically across the spectrum as far as, um, era, uh, genre, um, and, uh, region, uh, goes. And, uh, doing pretty well right now. Uh, we're getting a lot of, uh, we've been getting a lot of reviews up there. Um, trying to do more long form articles. So if any of you out there are interested in writing for our uh, blog, first check us out and then, uh, email us. Um, there's contact information on the website. Uh, and then uh, let us know uh, what you're into and what you'd like to do. 
We're also on uh, Twitter, of course, uh, at V Cinema Show. Uh, we're also on Facebook. Um, that's basically it, though. Um, you know, we don't engage in any other social networks just yet. Um, there's a new one out. Um, I don't know if you've heard about it, uh, Ken, called Ello. E L L O. I have no idea. I mean, I'm so behind on these <laughs> things, and I barely get what kids are into nowadays because I, you know, Facebook is out. You know, the kids right. don't use Facebook anymore. So, not that kids is necessarily your demographic for B Cinema, but right. uh, yeah, I, I never like throughout the history of you know social media phenomenons, uh, you know, blogging and Facebook and what have you. I catch on late because I, I don't understand it. I'm pretty stupid, John, as you well know. <laughs> so what's this? What was it? Hello? Yolo? Hello, E-L-L-O. I guess it's a big thing. It's kind of like it's supposed to be an anti-Facebook social network. It's kind of okay. closed right now. I guess it's in beta. But uh, the big thing about it is that you can now post GIFs. Yes, which might be good for actually sites like ours who can, you know, promote, you know, scenes from movies or whatever. Okay. Uh, it all sounds uh, not revolutionary as such, but I'm sure it'll catch on. You know, GIFs, movable GIFs. I think we've had that for a good, good decade. And also, is that uh, the new Google Plus? I don't really know, you know. I never got Google Plus either. I mean, what's going like <laughs> Hangouts and circling and stuff. I just want to go on there and be... But, uh, as I said, I'm pretty stupid, John. So uh, have to have to keep that in mind. But, um, yeah, it's it's forgiven, I'm sure. <laughs> so this is gonna be uh, interrupting again because we did a rundown of the segments that are coming up that are covering also the blessing bell portions of our recording. So this is me redoing the rundown of what to expect during this episode on Monday and. We have starting times noted in the show post for you to look at if you want to jump ahead to any segment, like if you want to jump ahead to our review of Monday, you can do that. So, first of all, we will recap the biography of Sabu and briefly present our views on the movies covered in the first episode. After that, there will be quick takes on the movies Unlucky Monkey and Drive, as they will not be part of the main focus of this or any other episode of this series. What follows after that is an extended chat on Japanese cinema and how a craftsman like Sabu fits into the current trend. And then we head to our main discussion of Monday as the closer of this episode. As I said, we want to establish some context again. So um, I'm just going to tell you really quickly who Sabu is. and uh, if you, as we said in the first episode, if you type in Sabu on Wikipedia, there's a lot of search results because there are multiple wrestlers, there's uh, Bollywood filmmakers and actors uh, that go under the same name. But this is a Japanese film director and uh, actor, formerly an actor. And his real name is Hiroyuki Tanaka, but goes on under the name or pseudonym Sabu. Oh, oh, what would you say, like, how would you probably say what what Sabu means in all of this? Is it a pseudonym? Is it a... a... Well, he he says it's a nickname that he got uh, when he was uh, uh, in one of his, uh, in his first movie uh, that he uh, acted in. Uh, The name of the film was uh, Sorobanzuku, as a 1986 film. And, um, you know, as actors go, you know, instead of, you know, I mean, they give the term nicknames, and I guess in this case, his nickname was the name of his character. And... When he started his directing career, you know, he says that he basically um, wanted to continue using that nickname, so he just carried on to his uh, 
to his director self, and then Hiroyuki Tanaka is more of his actor self, I guess you could say. Mm, right. So it's kind of interesting because um, I almost think of it as almost being like like a punk rock name, sort of, you know, like. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of punk rockers like to give themselves nicknames, you know, Johnny Rotten, you know, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. This is a classic example. Or, you know, of course, all the Ramones or whatever, you know. So it kind of uh, gives you sort of uh, anonymity uh, in a way, but also kind of gives you like this sort of like mystique as well. So I'm sure that that was part of his decision to sort of break off uh, the name uh, into his uh, directing career. Have you ever like studied the credits of his movies? If he's cred, because he's acted in some of these movies, there. Have you ever studied them to the extent where you can see he's crediting himself as Sabu the actor, or like when the actor list comes up, it's Hiroyuki Tanaka. In his own films, he uh, credits himself as uh, Sabu, but uh, in other films, I've almost always seen Hiroyuki Tanaka. And, and really, it's not like he's been in you know millions of films, but you know, just enough where, um, where you know, once I realized, oh, he's a director too. Oh, wait, he's got a different name as a director. So you sort of notice his name in the credits when, uh, when he's acting in films. And I've never seen, at least that I know of, his name has shown up as uh, Sabu. Right. Yeah. For instance, in Ichi the Killer, he's credited under his real name, I assume. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure, anyway. <laughs> That, that's something to double check, I guess, for next episode. Yeah, sure. I haven't seen Each of the Killer, and so I know he's in it though, but um, that, that's about it. Uh, but as John mentioned, he um, he acted as uh, early as in the um, latter half of the 80s or mid 80s, uh, and uh, made a num- number of movies. Um, no, you know, not a ton, like ten a year or five a year or anything. But he eventually uh, sort of got tired of acting and made a transition to director. And that was in 1996 through Dungan Runner, aka Nonstop, and he established through that movie and his follow-up, or his second movie, Postman Blues, this trademark uh, style or trait of uh, quirky humor, um, action, even drama, and to quote the Wikipedia bio again, his uh, movies contain sort of, um, you can summarize his movies uh, this way, quote, propelled, uh, the movies are propelled by characters who hurtle headlong through squirming narratives steered more by the forces of coincidence, or of incidents and coincidence than the actions of the protagonists themselves. And even though he's not sticking solely to this style, because he's still directing, it would be kind of uh, awful if that was his only sort of playing card, if you will. It is, after all, something he is associated with through movies like the ones I mentioned. And our reviews stated for like the first two movies that this mix that I just described is something he does quite well. And I describe Dangan Runner as very confident and oddball and dry, with a little bit of drama thrown into somewhat absurd circumstances. And his even better second movie, Postman Blues, I described as bigger, longer, more expansive, and very sabu, which is welcome. So that was me for, for the first two movies. Again, John, to repeat a little bit from episode one, in your opinion, is Sabu like way too unknown? And is he uh, an underrated director in Japan and globally? And um, also, well, if you can recap your opinions of the first two movies in the first episode. Right. Well, I'd say probably outside of Japan, he's not as well known as maybe could have been because... 
I think as we covered last episode, you know, there, I think there was this really this opportunity for him to have uh, ridden this wave of, you know, Japanese genre film that came into uh, the U.S. and, you know, undoubtedly Europe and other regions. And I think for... Uh, for some part, he he was able to, you know, in Hong Kong, for example. I mean, I, I believe most of his films are available on VCD or DVD in Hong Kong. So that that says something for at least that region. As you've covered last episode, and you're going to probably mention this episode, you know, some of his stuff has been released in uh, in Europe. And we did find out, or you found out, that one of his films was released here in the U.S. at least um, uh, on DVD. And of course, he's played festivals before. Um, so, you know, I, I think the extent to being unknown maybe is a little um, maybe exaggerated, but uh, certainly I think he could be considered underrated, at least outside of Japan. I've kind of looked a little deeper into his um, his status in Japanese cinema. It seems like he has a um, he has a fan base of uh, younger people, like you know, I guess in their twenties and thirties, hmm, um, which kind of makes sense because you know, I mean, if we look at the mix of comedy and drama and this sort of um, uh, action as well, you know, that's those are things that appeal more to younger folks. Um, hey, let me make a real, uh, maybe lame comparison. Then is that kind of the same for Kitano's movies? Uh, uh, does his appeal like cover a larger demographic? You feel? I think that his films have a slightly different demographic um, because there's Kitano, the yakuza film director. And really, I wouldn't say that he's only known for that genre, but you know, that's a genre that kind of stands out when you think of his uh, output. I mean, certainly he's done comedies before. He, he's a comedian, after all. You know, there was uh, the film uh, Getting Any, as well as uh, you could say. I, I mean, most of his films have some element of comedy in them, anyway. Um, but he's also done a number of uh, art films too. You know, art-like films. So, I think that um, if you look at them as directors now, as we know them, I, I probably Kitano is probably seen as a little more eclectic. At the same time, though, I don't know if you could say that um, he has a very defined uh, fan base. Mm-hmm. But you know, that's something I'll have to look into. And it's, and of course, it's interesting because those two guys they intersect at times in the sort of themes that they they uh, have in their films as well as the actors they use and of course you mentioned last episode that Sabu is going to be working with Office Kitano uh, in the, the his next film so well back to my impressions of the first two films I guess you could say that um, if you didn't listen to those episodes you know my basic opinions were that both were pretty solid entertaining films uh, Postman Blues being the more polished of the two um, and I would say that's actually kind of a uh, a rarity because you know since that being his second film you would expect the old sophomore slump but um mm-hmm. postman blues is actually uh in some ways you know a lot um a lot stronger than his uh his freshman film so maybe but i wouldn't i, I wouldn't necessarily call Dongan runner a, a freshman slump but um i guess if anything you'd say you know they're they they're the two films just get progressively better so mm-hmm. definitely definitely and uh as I mentioned that there, we skipped a few movies uh, to keep this uh, series sort of a 
at four episodes, it means we have to skip some movies in terms of picking them for main discussion and extensive discussion. And the two movies that happen in between, although I didn't look at release dates, so, you know, specifically, uh, because uh, uh, his movie Drive was released in the same year as Monday. But regardless, the movies in between were Unlucky Monkey and Drive. And uh, as I said, I am going to catch up on these because obviously I have an interest in Sabu for this episode. I did not have time to watch them just to share a brief opinion. But John... As far as I know, you checked out both, or did you only have time to check out Drive, as a matter of fact? No, I checked out both. I had already seen uh, Unlucky Monkey before, I believe, um, or at least I'd seen scenes from it. And, you know, it's, I'm always watching scenes from films and sometimes thinking, oh, I've seen the whole film, you know, <laughs> that kind of thing. But um, let me summarize uh, Unlucky Monkey. Well, first off, let me just say that, you know, as we've learned by now, you know, this being only the second episode in this series that uh, due to the film's episodic nature, you know, um, his films are really not easy to summarize uh, in just one or two sentences. Bonkers. Right. There's so much stuff going on at once and it's, you just can't paint a full picture with, with just a summary, you know, but you know, with that said, I'll, I'll try my best. Uh, Unlucky monkey basically involves uh, it's two stories, uh, both of which involve accidental deaths, and these two stories intersect each other. The first story is a crook, which is uh, played by our uh, buddy uh, Tsutsumi, who's you know the uh, the lead in uh, many of uh, Sabu's or basically all of Sabu's early films. But uh, Tsutsumi plays a character who's fleeing from the police after a robbery uh, and botched escape that results in him killing a woman. And the second story is a small gang of yakuza who are fleeing, uh, but they're not fleeing from the police. But essentially, they're fleeing from their impending doom uh, because uh, mainly due to an accident, uh, an accidental killing, excuse me, of their boss uh, by their own hands. So um, as you can see, there's a lot of things that can happen in between the intersection of these stories and, you know, happen they do. You know, that's that's all I got to say, because, you know, my impression of the film is that uh, it very much maintains uh, Sabu's comic energy in intricate weaving of humor and plot uh, as many of the earlier films. And at this point, I think it's kind of interesting to note that, you know, this being only the second episode and we've, and we've only gone through, was it, uh, if we include all the films that we're doing this episode and the last episode, so that's six films, we can actually start separating Sabu's films into time periods. You know, it's just kind of ridiculous because we're only talking about, you know, what about uh, not even 20 years worth of effort from him but i think if you look at unlucky monkey in his filmography it's definitely one of his earlier films so something a little more uh, focusing on the humor and the action of of um of the characters within the film now drive on the other hand uh, you know coincidentally enough or not depending on uh you know depending on you know, our viewing of the rest of his films eventually, you know, but uh, uh, drive involves a bank job. So, but in this case, three crooks, not cooks, (laughs) three crooks get double crossed. And uh, their only means of capturing the double crosser is to jump in the car of an innocent passerby, Asakura, who's uh, played by our, uh, our hero, uh, Tsutsumi. And in this case, uh, Tsutsumi plays this character who's a bit of a milk toast. And he, uh, 
he's basically a, um, I guess you could say, kind of a nerd. He sort of um, listens to what people say, and he also follows traffic rules to the T. <laughs> I can just kind of see some very, very droll humor, like they're stopping at a stop sign and they're waiting for a train or something like, why don't you drive, drive, stop sign, stop sign. Those kind of things happen, exactly. That, that, that can be gut-busting hilarious if done right, like with the kind of correct dry tone. And I, I have confidence in Sabu for in terms of a gag like that, if you will. So. Right. But then, of course, as you know, the story goes into all different directions, actually, so... It goes into, you know, the history of uh, Tsutsumi's character and his his blossoming, so to speak. So there's a whole bunch of things going on. As as I mentioned, it's not something that you can just tag down in one or two sentences as far as the uh, overall, uh, the full picture of this film. So um, I think that this film, you could see, you know, as I said, uh, Unlucky Monkey, you could regard as being like part of, of Sabu's earlier period. Drive is kind of a, a little bit more akin to a film that we're going to talk about um, a little later, which is a Blessing Bell. Mm-hmm. It's a little more contemplative, um, and I think it's a little more looking into the human condition a little more um, seriously, but it's not without its moments of, as you as you surmised, uh, Kenneth, uh, you know, the wacky humor. So it's almost like you can feel it being like a transitional piece. It's not squarely in one category or the other just yet, but just kind of moving into from one to the other, not losing either of the two. Unfortunately, the film is a little less successful, maybe because of that, uh, maybe because some of the story elements didn't really gel as well as uh, as some of his earlier films. Um, but uh, certainly, I think it's uh, worth checking out uh, it being, you know, some uh, it having, you know, some really good uh, humor in it. Those are my two takes on those two films. Right on. Let's move on. And uh, you found a um, fairly recent article on Variety. It was it was dated 2014, and now the date escapes me. And that article, uh, I, I think it was just published maybe yesterday. Uh, we're we're talking by on October 5th, so literally very recent and good. Yeah. And it was talking of how. Japanese movies with a lot of involvement involvement in terms of companies who invested and uh, their ultimate goal being, you know, a lot of exposure on cinema and TV, and what what that they use the term that filmmakers are now using something called self control to make sure movies are made under the guidelines of all parties involved, which obviously sounds like the global kind of problem for certain filmmakers, you know, working in the mainstream versus working independent where there's more restrictions in the mainstream area because there's a lot of cooks in, cooks in that kitchen versus less, less exposure but less restrictions making an indie movie and uh, sort of reflecting your true voice versus the mainstream way where your voice can be very, very filtered and you know, it's it's creativity versus uh, you know creativity drained, um, and the filmmakers are kind of uh, the article gave, gave the impression that filmmakers are almost maybe forced is uh, the wrong wrong word to play it safe uh, and not uh, you know provide original ideas because uh, 
a lot of these high, big companies involved are not looking for original ideas. They are looking for safe ideas that they can sell and, uh, you know, exposure and get the money machine rolling. You know, and, and that means kind of draining also more adult elements like violence and sex. Uh, and the, this could be applied to actors, too, that the roles are seemingly like um, empty and with no creative challenges. And and I think you both read, and I certainly read that Sabu has expressed that about his acting, that he felt like he couldn't find an outlet for himself personally as a term like that, but as an artist, like there was nothing there to um, be challenged by anymore. Maybe that's what he, the wall he ran into. Uh, but, um, you know, want to talk about that article too. And, and like, is this uh, a fair a view of Japanese cinema today, and, and and has it been like this for a while? Do you think? Well, first off, um, you know, I, I encourage everyone to check out the article. Hopefully, I, I'm assuming you'll put a link in the notes, Ken. The article is written by Mark Schilling, who is a film critic. He's originally from the U.S. Um, he's lived in uh, Tokyo for many years, so you know, there's definitely credibility there. In fact, he's a successor for uh, Donald Ritchie who was a critic for the Japan Times among, you know, many other journals, and he's written many other books, etc. cetera, uh, probably the world's foremost uh, film critic. But um, so Mark Schilling is the is basically uh, Donald Ritchie's successor as far as um, as far as like carrying the torch for uh, for English language film criticism of Japanese film. So uh, there is much credibility to this uh, article. Um, second thing is. Um, you know, just the article itself, of course, if you are into film or any sort of creative endeavor, you know that there is an, always an intersection between art and commerce. And the interaction between the two is sometimes very interesting, um, I guess, on, in, you could say on the positive side, and sometimes very damaging, um, you could say, on the on the more pessimistic side of things, um, and of course, this article basically goes into detail about how, as you mentioned, uh, Kenneth, you know how the influence of not only not only commercial uh, stakeholders, you know, and I'm not just talking about uh, studios. I'm talking about um, you know sponsors, you know, people like Toyota, Nissan, Sony, etc have as well as publishers you know publishers who publish novels and manga that become adapted into live action film and anime film um about how their influence has basically uh, you know if you want to look on the pessimistic side of things crushed the uh, creative spirit of film which is basically to be able to do Whatever you want, um, you know, at least to have that artistic freedom to express yourself. Maybe not necessarily just, you know, have a bunch of, you know, pornography and gore, so to speak. Although, you know, not against that, of course. There was a time in Japan where that was, that was welcome. You you had to fulfill other like other requirements, like including there had to be a number of sex scenes in there. You know, otherwise you're a bad boy. <laughs> yeah, if you're talking about like pink film, yeah. Yeah, exactly. There was, there was a certain quota, I guess you could say. You know, and even pink film to a degree, you know, if, like I've watched a pretty fair, fairly broad spectrum of uh, pink film throughout the different uh, eras, you know, from, from the 60s when it first sort of began to its, you know, 
blossoming in the 70s and then it's sort of more it sort of became a little it sort of bottomed out a little more in the 80s and into the 90s and you know a lot of those films too are sort of um you know and i'm saying this maybe as a pun some of those films are kind of neutered you know as far as their their subject matter goes you know um it's definitely the case that a lot of the earlier directors you know, brought in a lot of interesting themes, but, um, you know, a lot of the more, the later era, uh, pink film is just kind of more like sex in a okay story, you know? <laughs> so that, that's kind of, well, that's just something to look at. Maybe something that, uh, I'll have to explore a little further, uh, but something that probably can explore in, uh, Jasper Sharp's, uh, pink film book, by the way. So back to, uh, just the film world in general, you know, um, you know, the influence, you know, of the, uh, of the commercial end of things, you know, basically, because if, if you look at, I guess, I guess let's, you know, let's rewind back to, um, you know, Japanese film back in the, uh, you know, 50s, 60s, you know, and even into the 70s, you know, um, you know, you had a lot of, this is something that I was talking with uh, my wife about yesterday, but you had a lot of directors who brought a lot, a lot of craftsmanship to their film. They brought not only their vision, but they also brought their particular stylings and their particular themes to the work. And even and whether you liked, you know, particular directors or not, or particular eras, you know, like there are a lot of people who don't like Japanese new wave film, for example. You know, you still had directors who were who had that know that trademark style whereas now you have just directors who just feel it just feels like they're just doing the work and a lot of times it's because it's work they're being told to do the japanese journeyman director is a very common thing you know i think maybe more so in in the you know hollywood you know where directors can eventually you know um display or showcase their style but anyway if we go back to again classic japanese film well what you know what really changed it there are a lot of factors that changed it but i think one of the main factors that changed things was uh, television mm. you know in japan you know television when it became popular it got it stopped people from going to theaters because television was at least in the public's eyes um equally if not more entertaining than film so you know why go to the theater when you can just you know hang out at home you know which is you know i guess a sort of issue that you know even today carries on not only in japanese cinema but also hollywood um but you know ticket sales definitely made um made this sort of change in you know how studios wanted to regard film you know and a lot of directors too uh you know made the move from uh, film to to TV, you know, which caused a lot of changes because you know TV basically has a lot more connection to commercial interest because of you know TV commercials, etc. Mm-hmm. So you know you even had directors who you'd never expect to work in TV medium. Uh, like one director I can think of is uh, Akio Jisoji, who was um, basically an avant-garde director in his sick in the 60s, late 60s, early 70s, you know, he did some sort of uh, oddball. Um, he, I believe he worked with the uh, Art Theater Guild in some of his earlier uh, films, and he was in the pink realm for a while, um, doing, I guess, what you could call very, uh, not very, but uh, pretty avant-garde pink films, you know, very interestingly, um, interestingly scripted films. 
But then when he eventually moved on to TV, I mean, he was doing like Ultraman, you know, which is like, I guess for, you know, avant-garde director, at least you would expect. But he did, he was able to get some of his trademark style into some of his TV effort. But, um, but definitely, you know, it was a case that directors had to move on. Uh, some directors had to move on to TV because, you know, it just made money and that money is what you need to work. And that's what the artist always has to sort of consider that, you know, you know, should I be true to myself and, you know, do what I want to do on my own terms and unfortunately suffer and not make money? Or should I just, you know, quote unquote, sell out to commercial interest and just do whatever I'm told? But in that case, I'll be able to make some money, keep doing my thing. And hopefully eventually, you know, become somewhat famous or, um, you know, at least develop enough notoriety to keep, you know, keep working in this medium. Of course, you know, there's the rare artist who can sort of subvert that system and sort of work within, work within the system, uh, possibly even work without the system, but somehow still gain some commercial notoriety Mm -hmm. which is you know an interesting thing and i think sabu in some ways is attempting this you know certainly you know uh, i think we mentioned last episode that uh, you know the the first couple films were uh produced by nikatsu uh, Mm -hmm. which is you know by all means the the oldest running uh film studio in uh in japan well nikatsu now or and even nikatsu back when um you know, Sabu first joined in is very different from the Nikatsu of old. You know, the the Nikatsu of old was, you know, by all means a powerful studio, you know. Into the 80s and 90s, the Nikatsu is not so much so. Um, They are a name, you know, if you say Nikatsu to somebody uh, who's into Japanese film, they know Nikatsu, right? I mean, even someone who's not into Japanese film might even know that name, which is, you know, says a lot. You know, what Nikatsu had become by the time Sabu had joined, uh, or, you know, whatever was financed or at least produced by them or distributed, I'm not too sure what the arrangement was, you know, could have been a very different thing. It could have been, you know, maybe at, by that time, even like a semi-independent studio uh, by that time. So, you know, in some ways you could say he was lucky to be able to, you know, um, have probably through a lot of connections, you know, have the script that he worked on himself, an original piece, you know, have have staff as well as actors who believed in that script, you know, and who were able to make him produce, uh, help him produce um, the, the films that he's been able to do. So I, I see it very much Sabu as being kind of like, I don't think he's a rabble rouser, so to speak. He's not the kind of rebel who's going to say like, ah, I'm going to do whatever I want to do and fuck you all, you know. I think he's kind of more like the guy who knows how to work within the system, knows how to get in, you know, and we're going to find out in later episodes that, you know, he, you, know you had a quote earlier or you had you alluded earlier to Sabu not wanting to do novelizations or to do uh, manga, but, you know, we're going to find out later on in his career that he was, he did, those sort of projects, um, uh, off the top of my head, uh, Kani Kosen, which was mm-hmm. a, yes. a, um, it's a period a piece. adaptation. Yeah. yeah. It, it's somewhat of a period piece. Yeah. It's set in the, uh, the late Taisho era, era, if I remember. 
Um, but he modernizes the film, and uh, I'm sure we'll talk about that later, so I don't want to go into detail about that. And then another film they did, uh, Usagi Drop, was a um, originally a manga. And I'm sure he, there were terms under the under those projects that he worked under that maybe weren't to his agreement, but I'm sure he was able to get some of his own terms in. So it seems like he's kind of a, a clever, maybe you could say, uh, kind of director, someone who's kind of able to get his way but you know someone who's able to negotiate i guess you'd say you know and that's without knowing exactly what the arrangements are you know it seems like he has a lot of friends and connections which is a good thing of course in the arts to have so hello kennedy here again so seeing as this was quite a meaty discussion and section i've opted to split this Japanese cinema industry and trends talk and it will be continued and finalized in the next Japanophile on Blessing Bell. So what you'll get next is us reviewing and talking Monday. Uh, okay, we are moving on therefore to the first movie of this episode, Sabu's Monday from 2000. A very like, okay, Monday, that sounds pleasant. It's the first day of the week uh, and uh, what it holds is nothing you can extract via the title it's uh <laughs> oh boy here we go but uh we'll uh we'll uh, we'll obviously keep it uh spoiler free and what have you but regardless plot written by lh wong on imdb as an um, imdb user uh, user so a salary man played by again sabu's regular lead for his first few movies uh, shinichi Susumi wakes up in a posh hotel room, totally clueless about how he got there. Slowly, he recalls what happened a day before. Attending a funeral, dating but annoying his girlfriend, getting drunk in a pub and getting to know a Yakuza and his beautiful mistress, having a gun in his hand, and dot, dot, dot. I think that's actually the perfect uh, summary of this. Again, you know, how do you summarize some of his films? You know, it's like... And this, and this, and this, right? I, I, I don't even want to reveal some of the things that happen even at sort of, uh, if I keep it vague now, when he when he turns on the TV uh, later on in the movie to find out uh, find out some stuff. You know, I, I don't even want to reveal really uh, too, right. too much of that. So, uh, so that, that's a challenge. Uh, there's no like making off background and notes on its conception as such. Uh, other than that, I read... Uh, a quote that seem more humorous but can sound really mean that we we know Sabu is sort of loyal to uh, you know his actors and probably his crew but for this movie he said that he employed the services of a new cinematographer he had not worked on before because the old one the other one was getting a bit too arrogant but again that that's a quote that he might have said it laughing his butt off you know because uh, they're probably great mates but uh, make of that what you will uh, it's, it's only in print i haven't seen him say that specifically in interviews and uh, so uh, to to sh- shortly just ma- mention a few brief points it's a well reviewed and uh, liked movie regardless of you know, Japanese cinema fans know of it or still talk of it in 2014 or not. I, I don't know if Monday came up during your Japanese uh, movie uh, movie message forum. Uh, you uh, you looked up some uh, threads about Sabu uh, as you discussed last episode. I don't know if Monday came up. Aren't you keeping in touch with your friends that you made on that <laughs> yeah, forum? Right. Right, the people I just randomly search their uh, their messages. You know, it's like stalking them almost. You know, I think Monday only came up as like one of like one of the films he's done i don't think anyone had an opinion on it, if i can remember clearly I, I i haven't revisited that thread since so you know 
so so maybe Monday has an impact, uh, you know, uh, rep wise, reputation wise. But it got at least two awards, uh, specifically internationally, uh, though, at the Berlin International Film Festival, with uh, one award being the Don Quixote Award for Sabu. It's described as a special mention award, and the other being the FIP Reski Prize for Sabu, with the motivation for its austere dark with wit and keen eye for human foibles. So I think that's directed towards the specific movie, in this case, Monday. Uh, but it can be directed to uh, a few films out of the Sabu canon, if you will. And uh, so for my brief opinion first, uh, while I wouldn't recommend viewers curious about Sabu to go into this first, because it is such an assault on the senses... It is, so far, my favorite Sabu movie. Absolute unhinged madness. That, And as a movie, and Sabu as a creator is not caring about a mo- that a movie needs to be logical and real, real and feature one mood only. It can communicate despite being this wild. But compared to the other movies, it's way more wild, which is why I kind of, uh, <laughs> if viewers are curious, ease into the Sabu style few through, for instance, Postman Blues or Dangan Runner, and then see what you think about Monday. But I absolutely um, found it uh, <laughs> hilarious and absolutely mad. That's my brief opinion. What do you want to say briefly about Monday, first of all? You know, I very much enjoyed it, and I would say that it fits, you know, again, if we were to break up Sabu's films into time periods. I think it's also somewhat of a transitional piece. I would say it's uh, a little closer to more his earlier films than, you know, than I guess is more than what we might call contemplative period. <laughs> Again, we're yeah. being very, this is all arbitrary, you know. I, I, I'm sure there are film scholars out there, if they're even listening to this, you know, it's kind of cringing because it's like, Sabu, who's that? You know? <laughs> but um, I would say more on the humor side, uh, definitely. Um, yeah. In fact, the film actually very much rec- recommended, uh, recommended, the film very much reminded me, or at least the first two thirds of um, Monday, very much uh, remind me of uh, uh, Scorsese's film, uh, After Hours. But it just feels a lot more, more so, I'd say, than uh, Dangan Runner and then uh, Unlucky Monkey and as well as Postman Blues, a lot more like stream of consciousness, you know. And I think to a certain point, you know, when when the story of the film moves into the um, basically what happens is they that uh, Tsutsumi's character comes across, you know, a group of Yakuza who invites him to their club, you know. When that change of scenery takes place, it's almost like you're in a whole different, like, like parallel world. You know, it's like you're not in the real world anymore. You're into this fantasy world, which is very much kind of the tone of uh, Scorsese's After Hours, where, you know, there's a real world and there's a sort of weird, bizarre world that, um, what's his name, the actor, uh, Griffin Dunn. Yeah, becomes more of a participant in and less of a, you know, a, an acting agent, you know. So I thought that was kind of interesting. And the way the film sort of like twirls from that into the last third of the film, which almost becomes like, like an anti alcohol, anti gun, <laughs> like sort of, sort of, ty- I don't want to call it a tyrant. Yeah, or maybe not, you know, it's like. Maybe he doesn't mean anything by what he's saying. It's just this. Like, let's have fun. And- right, yeah, yeah. Especially, yeah, yeah. I mean, how then the gun, 
the gun. How, how, how the film eventually ends. That was like a Freudian slip right there. <laughs> but how the film eventually ends. Yeah. It's just so, like you said, it's, it just feels so unhinged and it's so like, it's like a mental workout almost, you know? I, oh, yeah. I think a lot of people will feel tired after this. That's film, why so. I don't want to put people into this movie immediately <laughs> because they, they'll just be. <laughs> Right, <laughs> you know, and it, not that it's long, but it's such an assault on the senses. But you wouldn't know that from the first third or two thirds because right. it opens like obviously fragmented because this is uh, about putting together a sequence of events, you know, putting him putting together his day that he lost, and it all starts at that wonderful funeral sequence, which I would think would you could cut that scene. Uh, extract that scene rather I'm not saying it's supposed to go but you can extract that funeral scene and make it into a Sabu short film too mm. because it's a neat little 20-30 20 minute segment that is uh, like the first of the events for uh, for the salary man I don't know if his name was ever given um, in the movie uh, Tsutsumi's character but um, I think it was once, but I just can't remember the name. Right, name. exactly. Yeah. It's not like everybody shouts shouts at him, at him all the time. Right. Uh, so this is his first, you know, event uh, um, within uh, within this day. You know, it's a funeral. It's uh, quiet and it's sort of somber, of course. And he starts to very confidently, and I enjoyed it so much, start to open up the comedic side to the movie by people just quietly saying to each other, and I'm sure I'm not describing this well, but one of the characters notice off-screen, that's a great picture. And someone says, about five seconds afterwards, what? And, and they, they're keeping it that quiet. And they then he starts to slowly build on the fact that it's a picture of the deceased uh, person. Right. And and they they talk of his, uh, that people are mourning him, that... Oh, yes, he was a hair model. And, you know, he's slow. I think this is hilarious, but it's just so slowly rolls. Mm -hmm. And throughout this whole scenario, which I, I don't think we should spoil what happens at the end, but the scenario becomes increasingly bigger and bigger and really absurd and bizarre because... Uh, let me just drop you this hint, listeners. Um, coroner, I suppose, uh, should have... Um, done his job a little bit better and they actually have to um, take a look at the corpse unwillingly and right. uh, then a lot of stuff happens but but you know what I mean it's still, he's not making this comedy check it out it's a comedy it's so goddamn quiet and it's that balance you, you know it it, uh, it tickles my particular like uh, like for dry quirky humor uh, this very quiet but also extreme scenario as it turns out uh, you know you, you you obviously remember how it all ends uh, before it moves on to his date with his girlfriend i have a recommendation um of course it's kind of like uh might seem as a bit of an odd recommendation since it's more related to the theme but if you like that first se sequence um, you might want to check out uh, the Japanese film The Funeral, which is a 1984 or 5 film from uh, the Juzo Itami, who is also the director of uh, Tampopo. It's kind of a famous film. But um, I, I actually think that Sabu was kind of referencing this film in a way. Um, the Funeral, is it's, it's a comedy, but of course it's set in a funeral. 
but it's kind of about like um is it like just set during like a few hours and therefore just at the funeral is that it or does it take place over a few weeks or no it takes over it takes place over like a few days if i remember correctly but it's essentially how in modern japanese society how it's easy to forget all the formalities of you know the culture you know because as you saw in that scene in Monday, you know, there's a lot of formality going on, even within that small sequence, you know, where you have, you know, the picture of the deceased as well as, you know, all the flowers and stuff like that. You know, every, every culture has its own formalities as far as uh, funerals go, right? Depending on the religion as well as the, the culture. But, uh, the funeral is one that really kind of hits on how a lot of modern Japanese forget a lot of those formalities, you know, because, you know, you know, as westernized as they've, they've become, you know, it's, it's easy to forget all the things of the past, you know, so. I mean, for instance, they have to turn the coffin at one point. They, they messed up the placement of the coffin, uh, which I think. Uh, right, right. Monday, right? Yeah. Exactly. Where they say, like, isn't that way north? No, that's south, isn't it? And they're like, well, we better just turn it around. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, very much so. Yeah. Yeah. So. This the film, the funeral, kind of, um, and again, I think he's, I think Sabu was referencing the film, you know, picks up on a, a lot of these little small things that you have to really remember to do when you have this sort of occasion. If you now you kind of you're in Sabu world and you're you're exposed a lot to his kind of humor, is it at all getting tiring to see quirky, droll, dry humor on screen, or is this funeral sequence for you another example of him doing that um, that well, if you will, that style well? Oh, yeah, I think so, very much. I mean, you know, as I mentioned earlier, you know, part of his, um, part of his M.O. is to betray expectation or subvert expectation. Um, when the film opened with the funeral, it's like, the first thing I thought was, oh, shit, because... If there's one thing that's the most boring thing and, you know, God forbid, you know, you know, the, you know, you want to honor, you know, the dead, of course, but there's one thing that's the most boring thing in Japan is funerals. Funerals and weddings there. Uh, and not, I don't mean Western weddings, but the traditional Japanese weddings are so boring because you got to sit there and you got to listen to stuff you don't really understand that's, you know, referring to, you know, a, a religion or a belief that you don't really you you don't you're not a part of you know and so there's a lot of sitting and just sort of you know doing nothing of course you know western funerals you could say the same thing but you know from that that setting you know we get probably i would say stands out as the funniest episode to you know uh, of all the films that we've seen up to this point you know and no one is really reacting loudly everybody's just it's almost matter of fact, like, okay, we got to turn around the coffin, that's fine. And then as it reaches its fever pitch, it, no one is really going, ah, wow, you know, reacting wildly to the bizarre things they have to do. Again, I, I, I would like your listeners, if you're interested, to discover this on your own. Uh, definitely don't yeah. want to spoil it because it's a, it's a, it's a very, like, all, it has to do with the full picture, but it's also very, isolated scenario that's why 
you you would have to put spoiler warnings on the scenario and I don't want to spoil it so that's why I'm keeping it vague but I absolutely love it it's so quiet and it's uh, and it's kind of stuff that just can make me tear up laughing because Sabu has that um, grip on it in my view of uh, you know uh, you know as I said as they just quietly starts talking about the fact that this deceased character was a hair model and everybody's it all it's almost not humorous because they're just talking about his uh, past that he was a hair model you know a deceased person could have been a hair model it's it just seems so it's obviously is designed as comedy but it's such a style that um you know uh, could divide viewers too you know if you're not into this style then you're definitely gonna have a hard time watching a sabu movie uh, which is fair, obviously. And they, we, we, we won't do too much like quoting entire scenes, but I, I love little surprising aspects of scenes. Like, for instance, when the salary man uh, goes on a little date with his um, sort of ditzy girlfriend, uh, uh, his girlfriend that is not very good at listening. Uh, at one point, she starts rattling off. Uh, what is it she rattles off that she said she could name a lot of like she can name all the wards of Tokyo? Yeah, right. wards are basically like, I guess you could say counties or, uh, because that's kind of like one of the things that you have to learn when you're a child, especially, you know, especially if you're living in Tokyo, right? Mm-hmm. You have to learn all the different wards. Just like in the United States, we have to learn all the states, which most people don't, which most people forget as soon as they've, you know, finished first grade, so. Well, well, I don't know all the counties here in Sweden either, so it's, uh, <laughs> but, but, but yeah, she, he, he is there to, uh, get help from her to kind of put together his day. You know what happened yesterday, and she's not listening at all. She's just inquiring about the funeral. Was there a cake? Right. Oh, there was sushi, right? Yeah. <laughs> but no, 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 there was no cake. And then he hears juice. No, there was no juice. Cut to, it's actually the waitress standing beside them, asking them. That was very clever. And I, I, I love that. That was very unexpected because you never see her in the frame at all. You know, he's just no, no, she doesn't, no cake, no sushi, no juice. Got oh, I. <laughs> um, so it's 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 wonderful. But the characters in this movie actually do laugh at some of the absurdity present because a latter scene sees it's kind of a scene that kicks off everything, as. He meets this uh, very odd and kooky, and many characters are in this movie, odd and kooky. He meets this fortune teller, and um, they he, they start, like, fragmentally talking about <laughs> your fate line. <laughs> and they laugh for a good one, two minutes and say only a few words about his fate line and his lifeline. And it's one of the few times I can remember so far characters almost laughing at the absurdity because right. they're, they're reacting to something that is funny between them even though it is absurd mm-hmm. uh, to us anyway um, I, I, I guess I'm curious do you think because it is so much this movie it, it, it is an assault on the senses uh, I, I, I guess you answered this but the characters are sort of they're not subtle uh, in terms of how Sabu writes, uh, writes them they are saying the oddest things and um, but not make a noise when they do it. Um, so do you think he has a grasp on that too, making his characters well literally funny? You know, if, if you think of the yakuza that sort of complains about the life of a yakuza, it's, it's hard work, man. So you have to have the scowl on your face all the time, you know. And it took me a long time to master that scowl. You know, yeah, it was kind of that was that was quite humorous. You know, the funny thing is that. I think you could certainly characterize um, Sabu's uh, comedic style in general, just as like 
uh, I guess the word you could use, anarchic in a way. You know, the more I think about it after watching his films, you know, I mean, there is this sort of connection to everything, you know? You know, it's like, um, it's not like completely stream of consciousness. It's not just completely out of the blue. He's not this make it up on the spot uh, kind of director because uh, there there is a behind the scenes featurette on the bootleg that I own that see that 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 where you see Sabo's um, storyboards and uh, even even if there are static shots there needs to be a storyboard so I think he's um, he he needs to have that to um, it's not all in his head and uh, he needs right. to hear that for his crew obviously yeah that that wouldn't surprise me because I mean. In order to pull off such humor, you have to have, you have to have, what do you call it, uh, continuity. You know, you have to, not only, you know, continuity in the film sense of, you know, making sure everything's in the right place, you know, where it should be, but also continuity as far as, you know, in Unlucky Monkey, for example, which I know you haven't seen, but one example is there is a plot device, which is basically a ski mask, you know, the kind that a bank robber would use that just gets passed from character to character to character, like to maybe four or five different characters in the film. You know, to keep that device relevant, there has to be some sort of continuity as far as its, as its relevance to the scene, you know, because because if you just sort of drop it, you know, you introduce it and just drop it, then people are going to say, like, well, what about that ski mask, you know? Or if you just take it out as a plot device altogether then you lose a lot of the good humor that that comes from it, you know. So I would definitely believe that, you know, storyboarding is kind of necessary or at least, you know, note-taking to make sure, you know, that everything is in right order. Uh, you know, which is kind of funny because, like, I, as I said, you know, I think you could characterize a lot of his humor as being anarchic, but in a way it's very, very controlled in how it's produced, you know. I mean, it's it's almost like it's neatly choreographed, and I'll, I'll give you a perfect example of that if we keep to that scene in in the in the bar in the yakuza owned bar after Satsumi's uh, massive uh, dance number. Um, it, you know, you essentially why he uh, his chaos starts is I, I suppose he, he just gets drunk. You know, it's uh, it seems like there this is a PSA for about alcohol. Don't drink it. Or it's not. Uh, but uh, regardless, he's uh, he seems like um, they just start filling him up with alcohol, and he um, he uh, becomes this extrovert all of a sudden. So there is this massive dance number set to awesome music. Uh, I don't know if this is original music, but um, goddamn, is it uh, effective? <laughs> it's fun. But uh, what I was getting at the example after. He's done his dance numbers, has danced with the girlfriend or the mistress of the head yakuza. They are standing together, him and the woman, and this head yakuza comes in between them, removes a hand, either if it's uh, Tsutsumi's hand or her hand, and pours uh, a drink into uh, into Tsutsumi's uh, mouth. That moment is, obviously, that's not, you know what you might expect and what characters naturally do, but it's just something that Sabu wants in there as a kind of choreographed moment that that's how that's how he progresses these events by having that moment be be a part of them i I don't know how to describe it as such but i think i think what it is is maybe it's it's kind of like flow i guess you could say like a, a you know you have to maintain a sort of 
well, one thing is comedic flow, but also a flow to what's happening in the scene and what's happening with the characters. Yeah, I mean, the movie turns darker, we can say that. I mean, there is a, uh, there is, you know, the central element of a gun introduced, a shotgun, and then uh, there is violence in this movie. And uh, I was hooked before, but I am definitely hooked as the memories, uh, we're definitely hooked as the memories are recapped. And we we know it can't turn based on what we know but we might not know the whole picture but we think like okay he's gonna wake up in his bed so he's probably not in that much peril because he's amidst the yakuza's and what have you so he's probably gonna end up fine right but the movie isn't predictable that way you know if you think you know where this movie's going <laughs> no <laughs> it may be some of the earlier work but it kind of loses style and confidence you know that's a absurd dancing scene again Mm-hmm. Uh, is very energetic and it's also he's not scolded uh, by dancing with the mistress he's applauded you know they they love that right. guy why they love him I don't know because they all have blank faces on them as yeah. <laughs> as, as he dances night away and it, it's not easy to like start talking character interpretations based on that it's just it's just very odd but I, I I'm swept away in like this perfect sense too like I'm, I'm I welcome anything Sabu throw, throws at me. And by that point in the movie, again, I had not seen this movie before, I did not know what he was go- going to throw at us during the ending, which is far removed from what we are talking about right now. It's funny you mentioned that uh, dancing scene, because that's how I came upon the movie itself. Um, uh, regular listeners to your podcast on Fire Network, as well as you know, uh, uh, one of your co-hosts, Josh, um, he recommended... Oh, what nickname do you have for him now? I don't even know. Well, well, he, he calls himself the Great Lord, Joshua Regal on the This Week in Sleeps show. Okay, well, anyway, that, that doofus Josh, um, <laughs> he, he originally recommended the film to me uh, based on that scene. Uh, he said, oh, you gotta check this out, this dance scene is really hilarious. I'm like, oh, okay, I'll give it a look. This was actually years ago, so, you know, I had enough memory of the film to sort of, you know, bring into, you know, what we're doing today as far as the review goes. Yeah, and I very much share uh, your view of this film. As, I, I don't think this is, to me, this is not as strong as film, in my opinion. I still think that uh, Postman Blues is a, is a little stronger because it has, I think the, the maybe it's the style of it, it is more to my suiting, but uh, the, this is, you know, this is definitely, I would say, maybe number two or three or something, yeah. as far as uh, what we've watched up to this point. I, I, I'd agree that it's uh, more. Uh, I, I like it better in the sense that it's, um, it's a bit stronger as a drama, and it kind of, um, it's more. You, I don't know. It's, I wouldn't say coherent because both movies are coherent, but it's not as wild, and you, uh, you feel more. I don't know, at the ease watching it, and it's not, it's a nice, like, soothing flow to it. This is, right. you know, full on madness, and it turns, turns into that, and it's, um, it's not due to this middle section, if you will, with the Yakuza's and what have you. And, and, uh, so for me, I mean, I, I think it's so surprising in, in a delightful way, especially when we cut to, right about me, the movie, to the hotel room again, where he starts to figure out, okay, uh, they have, uh, something happens with the gun, let's say that, and he, he starts to think to himself, no, 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 oh, there's no evidence. Phew, well, I'm glad that's done. <laughs> and under his foot is a uh, business card that he received by the Yakuza that is, blood, that is bloody and is stuck to his foot as well, like they, it almost peels it off. So it's just like, it's still in, 
you know, is still in trouble. Uh, and there is there is evidence there. <laughs> Um, and, and I think that those are sharp, confident touches uh, by Sabu and calm touches, too, because some filmmakers, as soon as you would cut to that card, they would do a loud zooming, meaning there would be some crap on the soundtrack and a loud zooming, you know, and even cut to or, or a record scratch. You exactly, know. exactly. <laughs> you know, something like we, that. We'll, right? cut, we'll cut to a, a black and white flashback to that scene. But right. Sabu has control over this, this narrative that we know exactly what that card is about. And, 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 and that shows control and skill and confidence, I think. Um, and so that's a regular narrative. But then in the second half, again, there's no, not much point of talking of all of it. But there's so much random, absurd bits here. But what he's doing that I've not seen yet anyway. Again, I skipped Unlucky Monkey and Dry due to lack of time. But there is a darkness and sort of exercising haunting imagery during the latter part of the movie uh, again that i don't even want to touch on but you definitely know i think all of his films to a degree have some sort of dark humor that you know the scene that you're talking about well, is... it, it, well, it's not really dark humor that's a really dark and haunting imagery you know when uh, you remember the elevator shot uh, and all of that. So yeah, with the uh, the uh, Buto dancers. Yeah. Yes, exactly. We can say that. Yeah, uh, and I've not seen that, and I, it kind of creeped me out. But it's also part of this just wild free for all that that eventually went somewhere for my money's worth. You know, it's not like Sabu lost the plot and kind of fumbled the ending. But having said that, he's not working with much of a familiar structure or where you can just kind of call it 20 minutes before the reveal, you know what I mean? At least I could to do that. And I think that's to the movie's strength, that he seems to be working via his own rules or maybe referencing other filmmakers working with, uh, you know, this unhinged kind of, uh, uh, kind of style. But I think he brings it home, in, and he, he seems to be preaching a message here. But I don't think at the same time we should take much, much he's saying here seriously, because I don't think Sabu is either. He's just kind of toying with us and having <laughs> having fun. Right. Um, well, first off, you know, with that one scene you're talking about, the elevator, you know, that's I thought that was a nice, um, you know, visual touch because, you know, obviously the metaphor is that, you know, he's that character at that point has a lot of uh, devils on his shoulder yes. and visually displaying that, you know, is is a is a touch that uh that's kind of interesting and also you know kind of hits home that point you know as far as you know because i i thought it too also you know is this is this ending just kind of or this or is this part of the movie you know like a psa basically i i kind of think that he was making reference to other you know what we call message movies you know, where, you know, in the end, it's like, oh, my God, drugs are bad. You know, that kind of thing. You know, guns are bad. Alcohol's bad. You know, something like that. At the same time, you know, you could say that, you know, maybe he's trying to put that message out there. You know, after all, you know, Japanese people do drink their fair share of alcohol and go go kind of crazy. And, you know, yeah, you know, at one point he has this comically large beer bottle as well. <laughs> the character like, <laughs> it's like, OK, I guess this is a PSA of some sort. Like, don't drink. Actually, I think that was uh, sake. Sake comes in really large bottles like that, yeah. 
So, so it really is that large. I mean, it looked comically large, to be honest, but maybe it is that large. No, it's, it, yeah, it's supposed to be that large, because wow. I, I don't, I don't remember it being comically large right, right, myself. Right. Yeah. So, uh, what was I saying? Oh, and then, you know, Japanese society as a whole kind of is aberrant of, uh, of guns to begin with. So it's kind of fun to have, funny in a way to have an anti-gun movie, you know, for a society that's already sort of somewhat inherently anti-gun as it is you know due to you know the uh due to world war ii and you know the co- the current uh, japanese constitution etc you know so that that itself is kind of like humorous you know it's like i guess you say almost like uh, preaching to the choir to to a degree you know but i think he was probably trying to reference you know so-called message films you know with that and then you know again at the very end you know he's betraying expectation of you know what his film really is you know and and he's got um uh shinichi susumi to work with here and his i mean I, I think he's a solid actor i've not seen him act dramatically as such yet which would be more interesting he's act in the movies i've seen obviously the sabu movies it's been this roller coaster of emotions and it's the same here but he does really well i mean this this it's this like nebbish nerdy quiet salary man and obviously gets a little bit of alcohol in him and he's outgoing but he's also out of his mind and he's also commanding of certain situations especially towards the end of the movie and and that 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 is you know range that Shinichi is good at if you're a movie viewer that wants you know a one tone one mood kind of movie and performance that's not what you're going to get here. It's not designed that way. But uh, he responds to it like you read about and is into whatever he's, whatever he's doing, you know, whether he's out there or or very quiet. You know, his dance number is just uh, kind of unhinged as well. It's not silly, but it's just this drunk guard going for it, but has confidence too, you know. And uh, one, one of my favorite absurd bits in the movie is... Uh, he uh, after the main dance number, he uh, he starts to dance a little bit again and kisses uh, kisses the mistress or the girlfriend of the yakuza and leaves. And ju- as he leaves, she continues to dance as well, like she's filled up with his <laughs> something, his you know, spirit. Yeah, which is just like really sabu. Yes, really, that is infectious because it's so silly. It is certainly not part of a real real aura like it's not a real reaction but it is infectious and uh, it only gets bigger and bigger and more dreamy um, uh, as uh, the movie rolls on you know it got very dreamy surrealistic imagery as well here as we suggested yeah one thing uh, that I uh, noticed about the back to uh, Tsutsumi uh, the actor is that you know in this uh, period so Dangan Runner was 1996 or 5 Probably filmed in 94 or 93, actually. And then um, just another four years later, we have uh, Monday, which was out in 2000, probably filmed in 1998 or 9 or something. You kind of notice, um, uh, at least I noticed that, uh, you know, we get to see actually Tsutsumi age a little bit, uh, just like in real life, you know, because... In Dangan Runner, he's almost like, uh, get passed for like, maybe like a college student, you know, maybe someone who just joined the workforce, you know, that mid twenties or so. But in this film, you know, he's definitely what, um, what, uh, Japanese people call an onisang, which is, you know, like a, like a bigger brother, like, you know, when you reach your thirties, like he's hitting middle age, it feels like at, at this point. And that's probably partially because of, you know, 
his character's a salary man, you know, maybe the they did some makeup to make him look a little older, but that was kind of interesting to see though, you know, we get to see him age almost uh in the films. And I think uh I think Tsutsumi now is uh fifty yeah, he's fifty years old now. Wow. So yeah, and then obviously a stage actor before his stint in movies uh, with Sabu, and uh, then he kind of, uh, I'm sure he divides his time, but he um, is obviously an awarded film actor by now, always sunset on First Street, uh, chief among them, so, um, yeah. Right, yeah, I think he's uh, in Japan, I think he's more known for his TV work. Right, right, right. I've seen him on TV, like, several times. And uh, yeah, that has, uh, has been asked to display a range here, even playing Yakuza characters, as uh, as we talked of uh, during Dungan Runner, and then jump to Postman Blues. It's, uh, it's like a very entertaining jump. Like, that's the same guy. That's the second, that's the third runner <laughs> from Dungan Runner. So now now he's, he's quiet Postman. So there you go. Uh, so I don't really have any other notes out of it, and I personally highly recommend it. Uh, but uh, as I said at the beginning, it's a lot to take in. And uh, go. I hope you, um, you're not surrounded by friends who will spoil the crap out of this movie for you, because the, the, the element of surprise and, and going against expectation is um, it's the magic for me. It's very, very entertaining and, uh, and wild and uh, good stuff. So do you have any other notes you want to share, John? No, no, not none particular. Yeah, I would also recommend it. Again, I think due to its episodic nature, it's you know talking about it in a way. You know, even though we can talk about some small points of it, but talking about the film as a whole is very difficult. So just go check it out yourself. And uh, oh, oh, in terms of checking out, <laughs> checking it out again, sort of problematic, but not as problematic as other movies. Uh, Rapid Eye Movies out of Germany did a double feature DVD release with this and Blessing Bell, but this has no English subtitles if you are in need of that. But otherwise, the specs are good for a DVD, obviously anamorphic and what have you. Uh, this was a release I wasn't aware of, but it's um, so I will pick it up at some point because I want to own some kind of edition of it uh, and also. By the way, uh, ADM Japan issued a DVD uh, around about 2001 that I didn't uh, find any listing of it on, for instance, CD Japan. So that's I, I can sort of safely presume that it has gone out of print uh, since it's you know if it was released in 2001, it could have been around for a few years and it couldn't have been it could have been a limited release too. So that that's is sort of often the case with Japanese DVDs. It's also kind of safe to assume that it might not have had English subtitles either. So what I have and watched is a bootleg uh, that is a decent looking non-anamorphic version of the film. It has uh, excellent English subtitles and even as I said a behind the scenes featurette showing Sabu and crew at work. So that's what I need if I want to view it. But now that there is a DVD to buy out there, at least I want to support uh, support an official release uh, because they are they are rare, as we said. So yeah, the Japanese DVD is out of print for sure. Um, I just looked it up right now, and yeah, it's going for a pretty penny right now. But uh, you know, yeah, it would have been it would have gone for a pretty penny originally anyway, because uh, as we established, also Japanese DVDs tend to be quite expensive. Uh, yes, exactly. Even if there are bare bonus and no special special packaging and what have you. But uh, who knows? Maybe uh, maybe if Miss Zombie takes off, then maybe back back catalog <laughs> can <laughs> can be revisited by some Sabu company. box set. Here we come. Yeah, I mean, I mean, look at it this way though. I'm always amazed that 
there maybe it's different now, but it seems like back in the day there were so many home video companies in Japan when we're talking VHS, Laserdisc, and DVD days that if one company had an interest in, let's say, some European horror cinema, they would pursue it and they would be able to put it out. Maybe not with a lot of profits after after all was said and done, but there in Japan there there's a bigger chance for small. Uh, you know, small uh, like specialized stuff to get distribution because there seems to be enough interest and enough companies out there to uh, take a chance on something. But uh, I think just like everything else, you know, it depends on the medium. Um, DVD uh, film companies are, I think, a little more hesitant. But if you think of like uh, uh, CDs or records, you know, I mean, those companies are a lot more willing to put out stuff uh, that may not have such a gigantic audience but still serve some purpose uh, for the community. Mm-hmm. You know, um, that film companies, at least in that aspect, have always been a little conservative in Japan, or maybe a lot conservative, depending on your point of view. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's uh, the availability. Uh, better than uh, Duncan Runner and Postman Blues, uh, but um, uh, no uh, official English subtitled release uh, if you are in need of that. So just before we sign off, did you have to see this with subtitles? Is it, um, or, or are you confident enough or skilled enough rather in your uh, at Japanese to follow along without subtitles? Going a little off topic, but nowadays I watch everything with subtitles, no matter what, you know, whether it's what, doesn't matter what the language is, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I tend to, when I'm watching Japanese films, sort of like, ignore the subtitles because you know once i start getting in the groove of what's happening you know i can follow along it's only when something complicated comes up or some complicated uh, topic comes up in conversation that i start looking at subtitles saying like is this what they're talking about yeah okay you know so i'm actually like comparing in my head what i'm hearing to what i see in the subtitles unless it's like regular broadcast tv i watch everything with subtitles no matter what yeah, even Swedish movies, I, some movies I just have to have the subtitles on because, I don't know, uh, sometimes even uh, some accents in Swedish, yes, I am in need of it. So And, and I also, I don't know, maybe I'm, it's an issue of getting old that I I, uh, I need them. They're comforting, just in case. It's kind of funny. It's like the reverse of why people don't like subtitles because it's people who don't like subtitles are not used to having subtitles. Yeah. But me, I'm so used to them now that it's like, you know, again, even if I'm watching something in English, I have, usually have the subtitles on if they're available. Yeah, yeah and we, we are also very used to it. Uh, we we dubbed, uh, we dubbed and still do, mainly uh, animated movies and some live action fare that is directed to what's children. But otherwise, uh, you know, 95% of the output here has always been subtitled, both uh, but both on video and TV. So uh, we, we always had a foundation in terms of uh, reading reading the movie. Mm-hmm. So it's, uh, I'm used to it, obviously. Uh, but okay, we are, we are going to take a break. And the second movie and the last movie of review for this episode is Blessing Bell from 2002. And this is the point where the Sabu feel changes quite um, even distinctly. 
we'll we'll see if uh, John uh, John thinks it's a change distinctly, and if I think the same. But uh, Blessing Bell is uh, is no Dungan runner in feel or Postman Blues on Monday. So um, it's uh, we'll we'll let you know what that is after the break. And that is where we cut what was originally a long Japan on Fire 19. And as I've explained during the show, for easier consumption, I decided to make this extensive talk cover two episodes instead. So come back for episode 20 next week where me and Coffin John talk Sabu's Blessing Bell. But in the meantime, here's some therefore newly recorded contact information. This has been Japan on Fire on the Podcast on Fire network. We are on podcastonfire.com. Find this show, all the other shows and bonus episodes on there. Email us for questions and if you have any feedback, podcastonfire at googlemail.com. Like our page on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash POF network. Join the discussion group by following the link on that page or typing in Podcast on Fire Network in the Facebook search box and you'll find us that way. Follow our tweets and tweet us at uh, twitter.com forward slash podcast on fire. I write about Hong Kong movies, Taiwanese movies and ninja movies plus varied amount of genres at sogoodreviews.com and I video review at sleazykvideo.com and I tweet at twitter.com forward slash sogoodreviews. Japan on Fire is on iTunes. Rate and subscribe and if you have the time please leave a written comment. That would very much be appreciated. That will act perfectly fine as a review even if you only have one or two sentences about the show. So thank you very much. And finally stream us on Stitcher Radio. You can do that through their website but the easiest way to stream them is through the application available to your various uh, devices, Apple devices rather, uh, your iPhone, iPad, and I think there's an Android app as well. And on behalf of Coffin John, vcinemashow.com is his blog, so check that out. So um, again, me and Coffin John are done. I'm Kenny B, and thank you for listening, and see you next week again. Okay.